Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Today, as I mentioned earlier, we start on this journey. Appropriately, we start with a discussion on gospel-centered relationships. Why relationships? Well, I'm going to tell you why relationships. Here's why. Because this is a book, the book of Philippians, that is consumed with relationships. Known by many as Paul's most relational epistle, this book highlights Paul's relationship with the church of Philippians as well as how they relate to each other. So there's a beauty of relationship here with Paul is saying, I love you as a church, and I'm praying that you love each other as a church. That's why we're going to this concept of relationships. But as idealistic as we want to make relationships, as, as beautiful as we want to paint this concept of relationships in our mind, that's not always the way it is, right? I put this picture up here because we love this concept of beautiful relationships. But I'm going to tell you, probably as soon as I say the word relationship in your minds, many of you will probably maybe hang your head a little bit and just shake your head. Why? Because so often when you talk of relationships, it's within the context of broken relationships, hurt relationships, ugly things that happen in the body of Christ. And yes, it does even happen in the body of Christ. As soon as I say the word relationship, probably some of you are sitting there thinking, well, good luck with that. (laughs) You can't trust anyone in the church. Maybe some of you are saying, I tried that, fail. Maybe some of you are saying, uh, no, You don't know, Pastor, how many times I've gotten burned in the body of Christ. Maybe some of you are saying, nope, not for me. It takes too much time and too much effort. I mean, so those are the negative aspects. And you're like, oh, thanks, Pastor, for being, you know, Debbie Downer this morning. You know, broken relationships, harmed relations, hurt relationships. Let's take a step, though, and think about this. Healthy relationships. Do you realize that in the body of Christ, it is entirely possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ to cultivate healthy relationships. We're talking about thriving relationships. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who love hanging out together and being together. It it is possible. Whatever we've gone through in the past, whatever you have gone through in in your journey of faith, whatever hurt you've gone through that sometimes scars us deeply, sometimes it's good just to remind ourselves in a general sense that friendships are possible, relationships are possible. I was reminded about that yesterday. I had the opportunity to run up to Lassen Pines and pick up a bunch of middle schoolers and you see them mingling all their elevate camps did their thing last week and all these kids you know hundreds of kids in the courtyard saying goodbye to their friends you know tears in their eyes you know some of them uh some of the relationships are like yeah see you later thanks for nothing you know that kind of thing others are like man i need your phone number i need to text you you know i need to contact you what are you doing today at two that kind of thing you know these relationships that are built at camp i and my mind flooded back to some relationships i had at camp to this day some of the closest friends i have are ones that i met at camp 
as a junior hire or senior hire, even some of them as an elementary school student. Relationships are possible. In my mind, I started thinking about that yesterday, and then I started thinking about college. My goodness, the relationships built in college with some of the closest friends that I have to this day Godly men, church planners and pastors around the country that God gave me the opportunity to spend a couple years with encouraging each other and challenging each other. So in my mind, I want to go back to that amidst this concept that, yeah, relationships, they get frayed, they get broken, hurts involved. There's also another aspect of it that, yeah, good relationships are possible. Through Jesus Christ, good relationships can thrive. In fact, I dare you. Right now, in your mind as you think of relationships, on the bottom of your page, write down two names of people in the body of Christ, could be here, it could be other churches you were involved in, that have caused you and propelled you to grow in Jesus. Who's coming to mind right now? Two names, write them down. These are people that God has gifted you with a relationship with. People that God, at the exact right time, put them in your life to help you grow in Jesus. These are relationships. Again, why relationships? Well, I'm going to tell you, this book, Philippians, is consumed with relationships. A vertical relationship with God that influences every single horizontal relationship that we have. Our view of God and what he's done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ impacts every single relationship that we have in the body of Christ. That's where we're at in this book, Philippians. Philippians, known as a book, that is Paul's most relational book. I've already mentioned that. Paul speaks on very relational terms to this church. Known as an epistle in the New Testaments of your Bible. So in your Bibles, you'll find the first part of the New Testament. You have the Old Testament and the first part of your New Testament known as the Gospels, telling us the story of Jesus Christ, the great God-man who came to redeem our souls. Then you transition from there into a book called Acts. And this shares with us the formation of this New Testament church. Even the book of Acts is in transition So some of the things that happened in the beginning of Acts are not necessarily what we would consider normative to what we do today. But what you see is foundation being set. Then you work into these epistles. These are love letters. These are letters from God's men to God's people. Telling them how to do church. How the church should function. And so what you have in these epistles, these letters, you have addresses to theology. I'm going to tell you, messed up theology is not just something that happens today, in this day and age. It was from the onset. There was theology that was all messed up. And so these men of God, these apostles of Jesus Christ, would write letters through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, correcting theology. But that's not the only thing they corrected. Guess what else they did? They corrected and mended relationships. They encouraged brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to act like brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ all the way through these epistles. And of all of these epistles from Paul, this one, Philippians, shares with us this overflowing heart of love. Today we're just going to get into the first two verses, but next week, this is a plug, come next week. (laughs) 
Next week, we're going to see this heart overflow where Paul can't contain himself. He's like, the affection I have for you and the Lord abounds. This is the relationship that this book is built on. Nearly 30 years after Jesus Christ had ascended up into heaven, and as the church was being established, Paul writes this book, Philippians, to a group of people in a godless culture, Philippi. This group of people are not heavily influenced by the Judaistic theology. Why? Because there's not many Jews in Philippi. Like, how do you know that? Well, as you look through Acts chapter 16, which you find the story of Philippi in Acts 16, you find a group of ladies studying by a river. Usually when you study, you would go to the synagogues and study. Philippi is not known as having a synagogue because they didn't have, in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 worshiping Jew men in order to have a synagogue. They didn't even have that in the city of Philippi. So you have gathered at this river a group of ladies who wanted to study the scriptures. Lydia is guiding them through these scriptures. This is the group of people in Philippi. When you think of Philippi, you think of this historic place. And I want you to kind of picture this in in your mind. You can notice Italy on the left of the screen. Way down in the bottom right of the screen, you see Jerusalem. This is the area that Paul would cover in a lot of his, in, in his missionary journal, journeys. Right in the middle, you see in the red, Philippi. This is in a region of Macedonia. Philippi has an amazing history. So it's not necessarily in Italy. It's not in Italy. It's in Macedonia. However, it is incredibly Roman. It's a Roman colony. And you think, why? Why would a bunch of people from Italy settle in Philippi in Macedonia. I want to tell you a little bit about that. This is a place where one of the most notable civil war battles in Rome happened. This is a place, I mean, even beyond that, prior to that, in 357 BC, this was known as Philip City because Philip of Macedon, Alexander, the, for those who like history, I love history, Alexander the Great, his father, conquered this city in 357 and then it became kind of this Roman city but this is what's crazy just a hundred years prior to this book being written Philippi was the site for a major Roman battle the battle of Philippi it's known where here's the names and you might remember some of these names in your history classes the civil war between Mark Antony and Octavian versus Brutus and Cassius happened here it was a clash This clash of Roman powerhouse came together in Philippi. This clash happened to the point where now it was reclaimed. This town, this Roman town was settled, ironically enough, by a bunch of retired military people. Part of the Roman military. That's Philippi. And you are going to see this theme come up all the way through the book because what you have in Philippi is a group of Roman citizens dwelling outside of Italy. This is not necessarily their homeland, but this is what they now consider to be their home. They are Roman citizens living outside of Rome. And I'm going to just give you a, a little bit of a heads up what we're looking at in this book. What does Paul say about Christians? Our citizenship is in heaven. He says this in this book. We look to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When, when people talk to, in Philippi about citizenship, it was a big deal. It was Roman people that knew a lot about citizenship. In fact, in Philippi, this town, this group of people, there was an amazing military mindset in Philippi. I mean, some of you have lived in military cities. There's a little bit of an honor system that happens in military cities. Um, we lived, I grew up close to a base in Colorado, and you knew even the surrounding areas off the base, there was a different type of a standard and of a culture around that base. People lived a little bit different of a way. Military influence in Philippi was huge. What do I mean? Military lingo, military status and honor ethics, military grit, military harshness were all part of this culture in Philippi. This is a town of a, with a small population of first century Jews. In the midst of all of this Roman citizenship happening in Philippi, you find a tiny little group of Jews and a tiny group of people who are interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This Philippi was a town that Paul, on his second missionary journey, traveled here and planted a church. A church with a group of people that were interested in what Jesus could do for their lives. Philippians chapter 1. Let's see this story with the first two verses of Philippians and, and kind of paint the picture. Today, we're just going to walk through these first two verses. I hope you're ready. A whole mass of two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the temptation of our heart is just to read that and to fly through the introduction, right? Okay, check. We found out who has been written to. We're done with that. Let's get on to the meat of the, of the epistle. Let's get on to really what the letter's saying. But I'm going to tell you, even in this short introduction, there is a massive amount that Paul is saying here. So let's go into these first two verses and let's start with just thinking about the title here to Paul and Timothy, the writer, Paul, his helper, Timothy. What do we know of these people writing this story? Well, I'm going to start from the onset to say we know something of Paul. This is a man that wrote this from jail, from prison. Ironically enough, as we'll get to on the bottom of your page, one of the key themes of this entire book, mentioned close to 15 times in this book, is the word joy. There's a man who is in prison for the sake of the gospel, and his whole heart is overflowing with joy in Christ. That is the theme of relationships in this book. But this Paul, you know some of Paul, maybe you know quite a bit of Paul. Let's just re review some of this man Paul. Paul, God's man, apprehended by God on the Damascus road. This man who thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians, God apprehended him. We're going to see this in this book. That it's like Paul was saying, I was on this way, and God reached down and grabbed me and picked me up. Uh, a picture that comes in my mind is, is of these little kittens we have running around our house. we got two of them, and they're scampering all around. And my little daughter, Eva, grabs them. I mean, they're running around, and she's got to chase up to them, and they know when she's coming, you better run. <laughs> all right? 
So she comes close to him, sneaks up to him as best she can, and I'm going to say she grabs him and holds him tight. And I'm like, Eva, you're going to kill that thing. She's holding on with all she's got, very similar to the chickens she catches. She's not going to let that thing go. And I think about that in terms as we see through the book of Philippians. This is what God did for Paul. He apprehended him. He grabbed him. I want you, Paul. This is the man that wrote this letter to the church of Philippi. Paul was, as we'll see in chapter 3 of this book, he was a model of elite Judaism. If there is an elitist Jew, it was Paul. What do I mean? He spells it out. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. We'll get there when we get to chapter 3. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, an elite tribe. He's a Pharisee. He knows the finer details of the law in Judaism. In fact, if you want to know how dedicated he was, he persecuted the church. He was so dedicated that people that called themselves Christ ones or Christians, he persecuted them, didn't want them to survive, put them in jail. This man, Paul, was actually known as, and I love reading about the life of Paul. When people look back, they would say that he was one of the most intellectually astute men in all of the world at this time. He knew his stuff. This Paul grew up in this place called Tarsus. It's like a, kind of like a university town where they prided themselves in how they can argue a point. They prided themselves in po- poetics. And, and, and how to share things. This is Paul. He grew up in this, in this town, this university town. This Paul now was trained by one of the most gifted Jews in the whole country, and the whole world at this time. This priest, Gamaliel. Paul was taught by him. He was mentored by this man, Gamaliel. If there was anything that Paul could brag about with a relationship with Christ... If anybody could brag about anything with their relationship with God, I should say, not Christ, it was Paul. Paul could brag. But I'm going to give you a heads up what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 3. He calls all of that loss. He even goes a step further and calls it dung, refuse. He's all these things that I can boast about, about my relationship and things I've done for God. All of that is loss for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's the one writing this book you have on your laps, Paul. Paul was a gifted tradesman. What was his trade? He was a tent maker. This man, Paul, would travel to different places, and I honestly believe it wasn't necessarily to to bring in an income as much as it was to meet people. He wanted to meet people in regions, and so he would get into the community and make tents for people so he could talk to people. This Paul, not only was he intellectually brilliant, not only was he culturally astute, This Paul, he was a jailbird for Jesus. Honestly, this guy spent time in jail. Think about this book you have on your lap, Philippians. What is it said in in, in Acts chapter 16? He was released from jail in Philippi. He's writing from jail in Rome, prison in Rome. There's other theories of how this was written, but I think all of the evidence points to really good evidence points that he wrote this from prison in Rome. He's writing this to a church in Philippi, and he knew their jail pretty well as well. This is a guy who knew what it meant to be persecuted for Jesus Christ. He was very familiar with prison for the cause of Jesus Christ. This man, Paul, he was a persevering apostle of Jesus Christ. One born out of due time, it says. He was a privileged apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a passionate church planter. Planting this church in Philippi on his second journey. 
visiting this church twice on his third missionary journey. Paul loved the church of Philippi. God had knit their hearts together. The relationship of Paul with the church of Philippi was massive. Paul wrote this letter in AD 61, 62, most likely, and he sent this letter back with a fellow that we'll look at later in the book. In chapter 2, we'll see him. His name is Epaphroditus, Afro for short. Epaphroditus brought the letter back. But then Paul also mentions a fellow Timothy. Why Timothy? I don't think Timothy was another writer, and he wasn't even the the amanuensis or the secretary. I think simply what Paul is doing here is he's including Timothy because Timothy was a faithful co-worker. He was a friend. He had been with Paul through thick and thin. This was Timothy. We know of Timothy. He was Paul's son in the ministry. Paul's son in the faith. You know these passages. They're probably coming back in your mind. We know Timothy was born into a family where his dad was not a believer. He was a Gentile, a Greek fella. His mom and grandma are the ones that trained him in the ways of the Lord. And Acts chapter 16, which tells us the story of Philippi, we find that Paul considered Timothy this son in the ministry, and Paul shared his life with Timothy. He brought him along. Now, we could say a lot more about Timothy. I, I think it's important to realize that Timothy was a man, Paul and Timothy, but Timothy was a man that was prone to fears. In First and Second Timothy, we see this, this timidity about Timothy. Paul says to him, Timothy, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, Timothy. Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Timothy, be an example of the believers. In word and conversation and faith and love. Be an example, Timothy. That's this Timothy. And Paul starts off his letter here with Paul and Timothy. What's the next phrase he uses? What starts off the whole theme of the book? Servants. Servants of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have said. But he starts off this book, not even as his typical greeting would be apostle and servant. He calls himself simply servant. What is a servant? This is, you probably heard this word doulos. It is a bond servant. In fact, some of your translations will actually use the term bond servant. And I don't want to dig too deep in this concept of, of bond servant, but in this culture, there were two basic types of servants. The first type of servant was one that was forcefully owned to be a servant. This is one that is driven by obligation. You will be my servant. I've bought you whether you like it or not. That's one type of servant in this culture. There's another type of servant that's not driven by obligation, but driven by admiration. This is a willingly owned servant. This is a bond servant. One who has given his life to the ministering to another master. And what does Paul clearly say? Brothers and sisters in Jesus, he says, Paul and Timothy, we are bond servants to Jesus Christ. Because of our admiration for the Savior, we have given ourselves, our whole lives to Jesus Christ. He is the one we are going to serve. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Now we find another key to the whole discussion to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. What comes to mind automatically when we hear the concept of saints? I think historically, traditionally, especially, um, even, even in some of our New Testaments will find this title given to certain ones, the sainthood mentality. 
But I want to be clear that when Paul references saint here, it's not someone that's given a special power by someone else. It's not some elitist group of believers. It's not someone that's done something amazing, so now let's put them up on a pedestal. When Paul talks of saints, he's talking about anyone and everyone who has been changed by Jesus Christ. It is holy ones. Those who have been made holy through Jesus Christ. All sinners made holy through the sacrifice of Christ. In other words, all the saints in Christ Jesus, he's saying Jesus' people, God's people. I love this because thinking in Philippi, what are these people thinking? We are Roman people. We were people of Rome. And what does Paul say from the onset of this letter? You are Jesus' people. You have been made holy by Jesus, Paul says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, we could say more about that, but let's keep moving. Who are at Philippi? So let's think in our minds this. What, what Jesus people is Paul talking about here in Philippi? Let's go back in our minds to Acts 16. Let's kind of paint this story. So if I am Epaphroditus and I am reading this letter of Philippians to you all and you all are the church of Philippi, who would be in our congregation? It would probably look a little different than this. Very possibly this house, uh, this church was in the house of one Lydia. Think about this. Over in this corner over here, you find a seller of purple, a more affluent lady. This lady who loved God but didn't know all the ways of Jesus Christ. And Paul came to her and showed her the way of Jesus, and she embraced Jesus Christ. I think very possibly the church of Philippi met in her home. All of her kids cleaning up the house in the courtyard, all of her servants cleaning up places so Jesus' people could come worship there. I think this is Lydia. You find over in this corner her and her family sitting there and tears coming down her eyes thinking, I'm so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that that Paul who's writing that letter came and showed me Jesus. All right, who else is in this congregation? Over on, maybe in the middle, we have a guy, a little bit harder of a guy, he's kind of sitting like this. He's listening, maybe every once in a while he'll give a nod. He has a Roman background. He's a military dude. He's a guy that if you read through the book of Acts, you look at him and he is so concerned about what happened in Acts 16 when the earthquake came. You remember this story through the songs of Paul and Silas? All of these prisoners are escaping. This is the man who runs out there. His life is over, so he's like, I'm not going to let someone else take my life. I'm about to fall on my own sword. And Paul and Silas stop him and say, no, don't do that. And this is a man who cried out to Paul and Silas, what can I do to be saved? And this is the man that Paul shares with him, hey, believe on Jesus and you can be saved. And your household. There's a guy sitting back in the middle, sitting like this. Every once in a while, you'll see that same tear come down his mind. Why? Because the guy writing that letter is the one that rescued him, that showed him Jesus. This is a congregation where if you go through the story of Philippi, you'll find a single lady back there. This single lady, she, she has quite a history. Ten years prior to this letter, and in her mind she's thinking back to this, ten years prior to this letter, when Paul came to Philippi, she traveled around behind Paul and his entourage and mocked them the whole time. Finally, Paul turns around and casts the devil out of her. I think very possibly this is a young lady that joined up with the congregation in Philippi and worshiped God regularly. This was a lady who God changed her heart. 
This is a lady who alone, along with these other ones in the church of Philippi, as Paul is, as Epaphroditus is reading this letter from Paul, very possible, I think tears came down her eyes thinking, oh, the grace of God. Oh, the grace of God that rescued me. I was, I was in bondage to sin. I was in bondage to the wicked one. And God rescued me by his grace. This is one of the members of the, possibly one of the members of the church of Philippi. You'll notice in this church, if this was the church of Philippi, there's a healthy group of ladies in this church. There's men in this church, like the Philippian jailer. But there's a healthy group of ladies in this church. But you'll notice that one particular lady might be sitting over on one side and another, group, another lady might be sitting on the exact opposite side. These ladies interact well with everyone else. Smiles on their face, hugs and kisses in the name of Jesus, eating together. But you know something's happening because as soon as these two ladies come close to each other, they go the opposite way. Completely ignore each other. Something had happened in their relationship. It's clear in this text. Chapter 4 says, I beseech Yodius and I beseech Syntyche, get along in Jesus. We don't know what happened in their lives, but something happened that caused these people, anytime they came together, to go the other way. And everyone in the body of Christ knew exactly what Paul was talking about. So if I'm Epaphroditus and I'm reading this letter to you as a church of Philippi, all of a sudden I come to chapter 4 and all everyone's like, ooh, he just said their names. This is the body of Christ. And Paul is not afraid to call out what needs to be called out. And he tells them specifically, brothers, or sisters in this case, sisters, get along in Jesus. Everyone else, and we'll get there in chapter 4, so just hold on. Everyone else, help them get along in Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a real book to real people. Talking about a real Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the church at Philippi. Let's keep traveling through this introduction. He says this, with the overseers and deacons. Some of your translations will say bishops. The word bishops is a word for overseers, or another word to say would be guardians. Why is this important? For a couple reasons. This, this group of people knew a lot about guardianship. This was a military outpost city, if you remember, Philippi. They knew about holding down the fort. I'm going to tell you, Paul says, there's a church, and I'm going to address the guardians of the church, the overseers. As you go through what Paul says in 1 Peter, or Peter says in 1 Peter 5, as you go through what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, we find there's three terms used synonymously for the pastor of the church, the pastors of the church. It's bishops, elders, and pastors or shepherds. All three of these used synonymously. And you'll notice the pattern set up in here, which by God's grace we're following here at Cross Point. It is elders, it is, it is plural to singular church. That's the model we're following here at Cross Point. Why does he say bishops and deacons? Well, deacons are the ones that God are done. They're the ones that put the feet to the passion. They're the ones that did this work, the the shepherds would, the elders would, the overseers would, but then the deacons were part of this. And and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, very possibly, Paul could have left that out. Holy Spirit, why did you have Paul put in with the bishops, with the overseers and deacons? And I think there's some good theories, but I think the one that makes the most sense to me is this. This was a very honorific, if you want to say it that way, culture. You honored people of prestige and status. 
This is a culture in Rome that if there was someone that had military status, everyone knew. And what Paul is saying is this. There's people in the church that demand a bit of respect by God's grace. They are pouring out their hearts for you. They're not going to demand it because Peter clearly says they are to not lord it over the body. But there's people that are pouring out their hearts for the church, the shepherds, the bishops, the elders are pouring out their lives. The deacons are pouring out their lives for the body of Christ. Let's keep moving. Hopefully this is making sense. He says this, verse 2, and we'll close out with verse 2 today. Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Seems like we've heard something about grace recently. We spent a series talking of grace. What is this grace? Simply, as we summarize it, is God giving us what we do not deserve. God sharing kindness with us. God giving us grace, and now as it relates to the body of Christ, it is God has given me grace, so I'm now going to pass on God's grace and God's kindness to those around me. Remember how we said that grace a lot of times could be synonymous with the term kindness, gift? It's a gift. God has gifted me with kindness, now I'm going to gift those around me with kindness. Grace and peace. I love this. Grace to you and peace. What is this peace? It is restored relationship. It is conquered. To this day, in the ancient Near East, you will find this among Jews, will you not? I mean, some of you have traveled to Israel, and you'll find a common greeting. And what is that greeting? Shalom, right? But remember, this is not a place, Philippi, that's consumed with shalom peace. Why? Because there's just a handful of, of, of believers, uh, of Jew, Jews there, ethnic Jews there. This is kind of another concept around this peace that Paul is writing to this church about and and his common greeting. It is grace and peace, in other words, restored relationship and concord. Not just peace in the land. It is restored relationship. We have to keep that in mind. Paul is saying here, grace, it's a gift from God and peace. Peace means I'm going to keep concord with the body of Christ because God has blessed me with kindness, grace, and peace. He says this clearly, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace and peace is from the one who owns the church. Seems like we heard something about that recently as well. This is not the bishops and deacons church. This is not even the congregation's church, even though we have a congregational polity here, this is the church of the living God. This is his church. And Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace and peace comes from the one who has created and sustained all life, the one who ordained his church before the foundation of the world. That is who's giving you grace and peace. The one who has who gave us the glorious good news through Jesus Christ. Simply enough, through this greeting we have right here, in the first two verses, there's a tone that is set for the rest of the book. And here's what the tone is. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. Look how many times Jesus Christ is mentioned in the first two verses. Three It's like Paul can't contain himself. And this travels all the way through the book. 46 times through the small book of Philippians, you find a reference, a formal reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is consumed 
with Jesus Christ. In fact, here's a fun homework um, project. Go through the book of Philippians and circle every time you find a formal title for Jesus Christ all the way through the, fo- through the book. You're going to find that the key theme, one of the key themes, I think I included this on your handout towards the bottom, one of the key themes is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, guess what it says? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings us together. So, what are gospel-centered relationships. And I'm going to close out with this. Just a couple more minutes, we're going to close this out. I don't just want to throw out this Christianese term, gospel-centered. What does that mean exactly? And there's a lot of different ways we can analyze this. But basically, a gospel-centered relationship is a relationship between people who intentionally, intentionally realize that they are only sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Basically this, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. And that is going to influence every relationship I have. This realization, it does something through this book. It does something massive. Here's what this does in chapter 2. It prompts humility. It prompts sacrifice in the body of Christ. A gospel-centered relationship says, as we talk often, our brother Mike Wood likes this term, I'm not all that in a bag of chips. A gospel-centered relationship says, I'm not all that in a bag of chips. I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. And because I'm a sinner saved by grace, I'm going to love other sinners saved by God's grace as well. That is what it means to have a gospel-centered relationship. In other words, this is a realization that influences every single choice we make in the body of Christ. Everything we do centers around what God has done to save sinners. We've used this analogy. It's like the hub from which all the spokes rotate. What is that? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that he saved our our sinful souls. Everything we do, everything, every relationship we make in the church centers around the fact that I am getting something that I don't deserve. So I'm now going to love other people who have also got something that they don't deserve. The gospel impacts every relationship in the body of Christ. It is basically like this. I like to look at it like this. Um, Some of you regularly wear glasses. Um, I don't regularly wear glasses, but my eyes are getting to the point where I definitely every once in a while pull out these readers and put them on. And guess what happens when I put those readers on? I mean, I used to have amazing vision. And then seminary happened. (laughs) And these books happened, and my eyes just started deteriorating. So now, when I guess what happens when I put those readers on? Whoa! I can see it clearly, right? I can see clear. Well, there's a song about that, but I, I can clearly see what's in front of me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know what, what helps us see clearly the people around us? What helps us to best analyze the people that are sitting around us as, as weird as they might be, as different as they might be? As much as they may have hurt you, do you know what helps us to best analyze the people around us? Is we, when we put on goggles, glasses, that are called the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we th- see through the eyes of our Savior Jesus Christ, we don't just see people, we see people who have been saved by God's grace because I have been saved by God's grace. So, in these first two verses, let's wrap this up. Gospel-centered relationships are what? They're compelled by a servant's mindset. 
From the onset, what does Paul call himself? I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Amid all this status-driven mentality, I want to tell you as much, and this is amazing coming from Paul, this intellectually astute man, one of the most intellectual people in all of the known world, and he's saying, you know what? I'm a servant, and that flows through this entire book. I am simply a servant of Jesus Christ. What happens when the body of Christ embraces this mentality? Status-driven worship is thrown out the window. Status-driven ministry, I deserve this because I am this, is thrown out the window. And there's a group of people that doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, we are all sinners saved by God's grace, so I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. That is a servant mindset. We find this from the beginning of this book. We also find that gospel-centered relationships are made possible through a saint's heart. He calls them saints, ones who have been made holy. There's so much that could be said about this, but basically this, saints, one who has been made holy through a changed heart. This is how God has made us holy. He's given us a new heart through Jesus Christ. He's changed our perspective. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, the natural man sees a certain way, but those who've been changed by God see a certain way. So how do we see the church now? Well, the natural man is not inclined to build selfless relationships. A changed heart thrives on relationships with Jesus' people. A natural man says, you hurt me, just you wait. A changed heart says, oh, God's forgiven me, so I will forgive you and I will serve you. The natural man says, I can stand alone at the top. I can be me. You know what a changed heart says? The heart of a saint says, no, I won't stand alone at the top. We will stand together side by side for Jesus. We're going to see that theme come right up here in chapter 1. So, gospel-centered relationships as a theme through this book are compelled by a servant's mindset, are possible through a saint's heart, and then, as we remind ourselves often, as Paul shares in the epistles that he writes, they are inseparable from God's amazing grace and consequential peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, again, is God giving us kindness that we don't deserve. And because he's doing this, he's done this, we graciously pass on this kindness to those sitting around us. Grace, peace. This is living in concord with other people around us. In other words, getting along. That is what brothers and sisters in Christ do. This restored relationship by Jesus Christ brings joy in our lives. You can skip down there to the bottom of your page and you see key themes to look for in Philippians. I just mentioned this as we close out. When I take a journey with my family, there's certain things that we'll look for certain markers along the way that we'll kind of keep our eyes open for. Well, I want to share a couple of them to keep our eyes for, looking for very quickly. First of all, the supreme nature of Christ. Christ shows up all the way through this book in a massive way. We see Jesus Christ and him crucified as being high and lifted up by Paul all the way through this book. Here's another theme, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you put a circle around Christ, I like highlighters and pens. If you put a circle around Christ and the formal names for Christ in your Bible for Philippians, put a square around how many times the gospel is mentioned. It'll astound you in chapter one how the thread that keeps us all together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's another theme, experienced joy in Christ. 
Nearly 15 times this word joy is highlighted through the book. Again, I'm telling you, this is written by a man in prison. A man who knows that joy goes a lot deeper than happiness. Joy is rooted from a changed heart. That when circumstances come that are uncomfortable for me, I can still joy in my Savior, Jesus Christ, because he's in control of this. And then a last thing to look for is this, expected unity in Christ. A thread that weaves its way through this entire book is unity through humility. And we're going to take some time on this journey to look at this signpost. So as, as a key idea today, where do we go? Here it is. As servants and saints, you're a saint. If you come to Jesus by grace through faith, you're a saint. We've got a lot of saints here today, but you are a saint So as servants and saints who have participated in grace and peace, and here it is, God's people must diligently cultivate relationships in the body of Christ. So what? This question, are you a saint? What do I mean? Have you come to Jesus by grace through faith? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you been made holy by faith? If not, would you receive the words that Paul tells to this this jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Would you become a saint? Would you see as God changes your heart so that you now can embrace a servant's mindset? Here's another question. So what? How is this going to make any difference in our lives this week? Well, this. Are you a servant? You. Not the person sitting next to you who really needs to be a servant. (laughs) Not the person on the other side of the room that really needs to serve the body of Christ, but you. Are you a servant in mindset and in action? Do you serve the body of Christ faithfully? Here's the last question that we'll talk about today. Are you pursuing relationship by God's grace? We are to, as the scripture, as we'll find clearly in this passage, we are to cultivate relationships in the body of Christ. Yes, even those who are different than us. Yes, even those who annoy us. Yes, even those who don't see eye to eye with me. Yes, even those who at some point have hurt me. The fact is, Jesus' people are to faithfully and carefully build relationships with other Jesus' people. So the question is this, but pastor, you don't know who I've got to work with here. (laughs) Pastor, you don't know what I've been through. You're right. I don't know exactly what you've been through. I don't know your background and your history, but I knew this. I know this, and I can assure you of this, that God does. And he's the one who saved our souls by his grace. And if he saved our soul by his grace, then we better pass on that grace to other people around us. We better pass on that kindness to those people around us. This is the story of Philippians the uncomfortable fact is this. Satan is, wants to do everything he can to cause wedges in this body of Christ, C- to cause divisions in the body of Christ. No matter what church you go to, you're going to find this. Satan does not want Jesus' people to get along. That's the fact. But the sobering reality is this. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. The sobering reality is this, there should not be a single person in the body of Christ that I cannot look straight eye to eye with and say, brother, sister, I love you in Jesus, and I am thankful for you in Christ. But pastor, 
I don't know anyone at Cross Point. <laughs> There's some new people here. I don't know anybody at Cross Point. How am I supposed to build relationships if I don't know anybody? Well, I'd say this. Don't be shy. And don't stop trying. Meet people with a smile. Talk to people. I mean, there's so much into this, and we'll get through this as, as we walk through the series, but this thought. Plug into studies. Plug into ministries. Plug into activities. And just a FYI is this. I am stoked about some of the plans we have for this fall because here's our goal as an elder team. We've been praying for, about this for some time now. Our goal is that every single believer, every single member at Cross Point Community Church has three options. One, to study God's Word diligently. Two, to build relationships faithfully. And three, to sacrifice in service, to serve sacrificially, that everyone sitting here today would have an opportunity to learn, would have an opportunity to serve, and would have an opportunity to build relationships. That's our goal. The class is coming up this fall. We're, we're hoping to start them in the fall. Not just the classes, but we're talking about activities together age-specific activities, and then group-specific activities, and then whole body activities, building body life. That's our prayer. That's our goal, that from the youngest to oldest, there's not a single excuse at Crosspoint that there's no one I can build a relationship with. Our goal is that the body of Christ, Jesus's people, build relationships with Jesus's people here. And then as we have a body of Christ that grows, a body of Christ that is close, guess what? You're going to find what Paul says, says in this passage, Jesus's body that's close shines like a star to the unsaved world. It's enticing. I want to be part of that. Why? Because those people love each other. Those people have fun together. We shine as lights in a dark world. A lot more could be said about this, but the point of today is this. As servants and saints have participated in grace and peace, we must diligently cultivate relationships, build relationships in the body of Christ. This week, study first, or Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, because we're now going to see how gospel-centered relationships turns into gospel-centered gratitude.